0: From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The Florida Everglades, replete with alligators, snakes, and stunning natural beauty, served as the first film set for Montana Cyprus. Growing up on the Miccosukee Reservation between Naples and Miami, the budding filmmaker started by imitating films such as Lord of the Rings and Gladiator with his brother. He's gone on to produce more than seven movies, acting in most of them. About his films, the Seminole Tribute writes, they are not centered on Native American topics. Rather, they are stories that involve Native Americans. Most of his work is fictional, dramas, comedy, even horror. His most recent, though, is a documentary exploring the Miccosukee tribe's relationship with the alligators of the Everglades. Tough skin is a close and sometimes harrowing look at what tourists initially dubbed alligator wrestling. But is that really an accurate label for what they do? It's one of the questions the film raises as it offers real footage of people putting themselves into dangerous and potentially fatal situations with these wild animals. Montana Cypress joins me now from NPR member station KCLU in Thousand Oaks, California. Montana Cypress, welcome to Coastline. Hello. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Rachel. It's great to have you with us. Montana's documentary, Tough Skin, is part of the Lumbee Film Festival, July 6th to the 8th in Pembroke, North Carolina, during Lumbee Homecoming. Montana, this film can be difficult to watch. And you even put a warning at the very beginning saying that it, that it can be tough to watch. How did yes. you think about that? Why did you start with that?
1: Well, I initially did a couple little, I guess, test runs with people I know and close to me. And one of the first things that kind of says, was hard to watch was seeing a dog in the gator's mouth that the guy tries to save mm-hmm. so that was one and then another was when the guy gets his head bit so that's two and i go you know what i think i should preface this whole movie with a little disclaimer that says this may be shocking view discretion is advised although there is no blood blood gore it's the whole it's there you know what i mean
0: you don't know if it's going to be there or not after yeah. that warning And then you actually, very early in the film as well, you do have this scene that you just referenced, Kenny Cypress. Mm -hmm. He is a member of the tribe. He's been an alligator wrestler. And and tell us what happens in that footage.
1: Yes. So this was in the 90s and he was doing a show. And from what I understand, because he talked to my father right before this incident happened. I was there but I was only about nine or 11, I forget. And I guess he ate a nice juicy burger or whatever, it was a hot summer day in Florida, and he did the wrestling show, opened the mouth to do the head trick where you stick the head in the mouth while holding the jaws open, and a drop of sweat landed on the gator's tongue. Thus, it snapped on his head, and held him for, I don't know what felt like forever, but it was probably about 30, 40 seconds, which can feel like forever in a gator's mouth. And that's what happened. But luckily, he survived and let go. And he had punctures in his head. But I think he said he wrestled the next day. Yeah,
0: he he, he says that in the film. And you don't even <laughs> yeah. know if he's going to live. Like you, the viewer is is saying, "Am I watching a murder happening here?" Uh, or I don't know if you can call it a murder with an alligator when you're wrestling him. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's so so. You set it up very right out of the gate as anything could happen. And this mm-hmm. is this is real. It's not something that's staged, like you know, clown wrestling, or it's it's genuinely risky.
1: Yeah, and I guess that's just a inspiration I gathered from other documentaries that I was researching before. I kind of went into this by Werner Herzog, who does very in-depth documentaries. Just there, I mean, he's does it on, you know, those ski jumpers that travel hundreds and hundreds of feet and then sometimes fall and collapse and get yes. really injured or he does documentaries in the middle of nowhere in the jungle and stuff like that. So I watched his stuff to kind of get a sense of, um, I guess, how to make it the realest as possible.
0: Yeah. and And we'll get into where some of this goes. But talk to us a little bit about how you chose this subject. Alligator wrestling seems uh so niche just such a uh an unusual and perhaps even obscure part of southeastern culture so why this
1: one it's cinematically interesting for you know everything that's involved in it it's i mean the the act itself speaks for you know itself, and you just have to watch, and you're already captivated. So that was one. Two is I had, I don't want to say easy, but I had pretty good access to all these things that are around me because I grew up all around it. So like I said, I was there when he got his head bit. Though I wasn't in the arena, I was there playing with my friends. I think we were playing football or something like that, and then ambulances, whatever. So I've grown up around it all my life. And when I reached out, to people I've seen, and like Jesse, who's in the documentary, Pharaoh, who's in the documentary. These people are doing shows right down the street from my house when I used to live down there, so. When this came about, PBS North was looking for little documentary subjects and I pitched them this, the alligator wrestling, they were instantly, you know, on board. So they invited me to do that. And I shot these two projects simultaneously. A little short one for them, and then this one, tough skin.
0: Yeah. You mentioned Pharaoh, Pharaoh Gales. He's the current wildlife manager at the Miccosukee Reservation, and he's a key figure in this piece. We have a clip from him that I want to play, but before we get into it, tell us a little bit about Pharaoh and kind of the way he comes at the idea of what we're calling alligator wrestling.
1: Yes, so Pharaoh runs a wildlife organization and he loves animals i mean he has pictures of grizzly bears he has pictures of huge pythons and then he got into alligator wrestling i forgot what year it was but he mentioned in the documentary and he used to work at the tribe so he doesn't work in anymore he kind of goes around florida and does his wildlife conservation and yeah, I mean, I think the first time I've ever seen him, he was holding a gator with both hands, like a baby, but a huge gator. And that, and I just said instantly, wow. I don't know what, where this is going to come about or how anything we might be involved in, but I hope me and him can get together and work someday. And when I asked him, he was on board. He said, yeah, I'll do it. And he's, he's amazing. He just dives into the water with the gators. He has a certain understanding with them that he explains in the documentary that you never can get too confident that you have to kind of feel out the gator get to know it respect it and then there's a certain little synchronicity that happens where they do this little dance them in the gator just I mean you'll see it in the documentary he puts his face in the gator's jaws without holding the jaws. So the mouth is open and his face is in there or he puts his foot in there and nobody can understand why isn't the gator shutting its mouth. Obviously its eyesight is a little to the side, but I mean it's yeah. Yeah. There's there's just some understanding that he has on some, you know,
0: some spiritual level
1: with th- these beings, yeah.
0: Yes. Let's listen to what he has to say.
1: Everybody has this depiction of crocodilians because, you know, they they think they might get attacked by them. A lot of that has to do with how the news presents somebody getting hurt by an alligator, for instance. People believe a lot of what they see on the news, and it's it's a little bit spun in a way that makes them a lot worse than they really are. And when, of course, if you just left them alone, you never would have got bit, so you wouldn't have got attacked and none of that. Um, I also never like using the word attacked when I do my shows. I always like to use the word defending or he's scared or he's just doing what he's supposed to do and try to always
0: avoid the word attack because it's, it's misleading. And we start with a news alert in Pinellas County where a man is dead after being attacked by an alligator. This is not the first time this has happened. Uh, Two years ago in June of 2020, a man was injured when he was bitten in the face. We're going to take a look now out on the lake where trappers are out there as we speak looking for the gator in question. Guest Donnie Weissman instinctively jumps inside to help. The man crawls on top, holding down the alligator. He prevents it from rolling a second time.
1: Pinellas deputies and a licensed trapper removed the near eight-foot gator, believed responsible for the attack on a woman.
0: One man is confirmed
1: dead. The South Carolina Department of Natural Resources says it caught the 11-foot alligator responsible and euthanized it. Wildlife experts say with the hot weather right now, the animals are extremely active and should always be avoided. Approaching the gator, but Boyce had bitten off more than he could chew. The alligator attacked him, nearly ripping his arm from his body. Boyce was rushed to the hospital. For nearly 20 seconds, it was a wrestling match between man and gator. Richard, with what appears to be a cigar in his mouth the entire time, Gunner's life on the line. In the end, Richard was able to pry Gunner from the small predator's grip, allowing the dog to say, Later, gator.
0: And that was a clip from Tough Skin, a documentary about alligator wrestling with the Mikasuki tribe by Montana Cypress. Montana, so much of that news footage that we heard in the second part of that clip, it's just so typical of the way alligators are portrayed in the media. Why do you think there's such a difference? And you know what? <laughs> I'll have you answer that question on the other side of this break. You're listening to Coastline. We're talking with filmmaker Montana Cypress about his new documentary, Tough Skin. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Montana Cypress makes films, produces them, shoots them, acts in them. He's been doing this since he was a little kid growing up on the Miccosukee Reservation in the Florida Everglades. As an adult, he's made more than half a dozen films. His newest, a documentary, Tough Skin, is part of the Lumbee Film Festival July 6th to the 8th in Pembroke, North Carolina, during Lumbee Homecoming. Montana, just before we went to break, we heard a clip in which Pharaoh Gales, uh, a, one of the best alligator wrestlers in the world, is talking about how he likes to educate people about alligators and how alligators don't attack. Uh, they're just – they're being alligators. And then we heard this montage of kind of sensationalist news stories about alligator attacks, you know, sort of monstracizing them. I think I just made a new verb. Um, but how do you think about alligators, and why was it important to you to include the way Pharaoh thinks about it?
1: Hmm. This because I've grown up with them, and to me, they're kind of cute. Even though one almost killed my dog, they're still cute. You know what I mean? Yes. And when you see this documentary, you'll understand that it's not for show most of the time. It's They love these alligators. They love wildlife. And to put in this part where the news is kind of, you know, even in the media of a film, you know, Lake Placid or the 1980s movie, the horror movie Alligator. I mean, there's an alligator that eats a bunch of people at a wedding, you know, thrown in the New York City sewer system and it comes out huge so it's been all over just like sharks or anything like that and i think i was trying to put us in the minds of the gator wrestlers at the end of the day of why they do this because when i show people this footage of the gator wrestlers doing these things even jesse who's a girl wrestling alligators they say you know what? what's wrong with them why do they do this they're crazy is one of the first things that I get. And the fact is, they love these animals. And I think it's hard, it's disheartening for them when we hear all these things in the media of alligator attacks. Alligator attacks. And then you'll see in the news thing too that, you know, alligators, this is their natural habitat. The Everglades is their home. All of Florida was probably their home and different areas of the southeast. And we build these homes around their, you know, habitats and they live in the lakes. And I believe they're one of the oldest uh, reptiles on the planet. So that being said, I had to put that in there just to show that, you know, this stigma can't go too far.
0: Yeah. Alligator wrestling almost seems like a misnomer. I mean, the way you talk about... What Pharaoh explains, and even the way Pharaoh talks about it, the way you describe—you're the narrator also, and there's minimal narration, but that is you, right, the voiceover? Yes. Yeah, and you even talk about one of the retired alligator wrestlers, and you describe old footage of him as poetry in motion. And it really Mm -hmm. seems to be more of a connection between human and alligator— when you're watching this then it's a human trying to dominate an alligator yes so where did wrestling come from
1: wrestling came from I believe around the 40s 30s 50s when highway 41 started getting very and tourists were coming through and development was happening happening all over South Florida And that's where my tribe is, in the middle of the Everglades. And they would see these natives pulling these gators from the canal, which back then they did it because you'll see in the documentary as well as one of the elders speaks that the alligator was a necessity. He calls it shillimushgit, which is, um, I guess, the best way to translate it in English would be a necessity. And it's a thing that they used, you know, to help sail trades and eat and use their skin for different tools, their claws, for little sharp things that they need, or even the the women using it as apparel, things like that. So, you know, this this act was so interesting that these uh, the natives would flip the gator over to put it to sleep so they could bring it easier back to the camp. And they were saying, what is this, what is this? And then they found out that they give them money to do these acts. So then, you know, a civilization came closer. They found a way to kind of make money by doing these acts for the, with the gators for the tourists.
0: Yeah, and you have at the very beginning of the documentary um, a song that kind of introduces the idea. And before we hear this uh, um, that starts with Big Alligator, can you just tell us who the artist is and where this song came from?
1: yes that is chief james billy he was the first i don't know no, actually not the first but he was a chairman of the seminole tribe of florida and he wrote this song i forget the year but somewhere around the late 80s early 90s and it's called big alligator and it became a hit i don't know how far but it was pretty big when i grew up down there and it's when he's singing in the song but the that's big alligator okay and then when he's saying all those other things that's stuff pertaining to the gator and its importance
0: and then we're gonna fade into another song that i'll have you explain to us when we come out of it so here's big alligator
1: big alligator he's mysterious big alligator he's amphibious big alligator he's dangerous but with a (laughs) Him to the tea, Satata, Chakipun, if Papa nigh yours, call the yonge, he awoosh a book. Tommy Hin to hin to the tea, Satata, Chakipun, if Papa nigh yours, call the yonge, he awoosh Hin to hin to the tea, Satata, Chakipun, if Papa nigh yours, call the yonge, he
0: From the documentary Tough Skin by Montana Cypress. Montana, that that second bit with the man chanting and then the children joining in, what are we hearing there?
1: So that is actually a count to ten. And (laughs) it was developed. That Way by James Billy to help the children count to 10 in Miccosukee. And I thought it was cool to put it in because all the films I do, in a sense, it comes from where I grew up and they're little, how do you say, um, little callbacks or something to people down there where I'm from. When they watch these films, they go, oh, wait, wait, I remember that kind of thing. A little call to them, a little inside thing. Yeah. And when I grew up they were teaching at the Mikasuke school all all the time. They were saying Thami hen stuff like that. So there's a little way to learn your you know, one to ten.
0: Tell us a little bit about the Mikasuke tribe. Who who are the Mikasuke?
1: The Mikasuke is a tribe that is It used to all be one thing, one entity called Seminole. And there was different sections that wanted to be where they were. So Seminoles were based out of um, Hollywood, Florida. And then the Miccosukees wanted to stay in the Everglades and start their own thing. And the first ever chairman was Buffalo Tiger. And in the 1950s, when when they were getting rid of all the reservations or trying to, and certain tribes, you know, were putting their foot down to get recognized. Miccosukee were only a handful. There was probably about 300, 400 back then. I'm not sure the exact number, but they were getting recognition, and the only way to kind of, you know, make some buzz was that Buffalo Tiger and then went down to Cuba, I believe in the 50s, and met Fidel Castro, and Fidel Castro recognized them, and then when, buffalo tiger and then came back the US took a notice of what was going on so that's kind of funny wow there's a whole book on that yeah
0: yeah and how many Mikosuke uh, people are there today I mean is this a growing tribe or
1: it grows but it's at a I mean it's it just grows because we're not a huge place it's it's two strips of road out there I mean they're long roads but they're two strips and I think right now we're between 650 and 700 tribal members which is yeah very very small compared to you know Navajos Lakotas um even Seminoles may have somewhere in the range of thousands but yeah that's it it feels very tight knit down there and I think the Mikisikis like it that way because it's more quiet it's peaceful in a yeah. sense.
0: Yeah. And Montana Cypress, your last name Cypress is mm-hmm. throughout the tribe. I'm not sure if this is still accurate but Talbert Cypress, the current chairman of the tribe?
1: Yes, that's my brother.
0: He's that's your brother. So he's <laughs> yeah. Okay, and then Kenny Cypress, the person who we talked about in the first segment who's Head gets snapped by an alligator in your film. Mm -hmm. It left on his body, but uh, for clarity. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But is he a relative of yours as well?
1: Yes, I believe he's my dad's sister's son, which makes him a cousin-uncle figure.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And, yeah, so he's like an uncle figure.
0: So this is a really close-knit, small community. Yeah. Can you talk about what it was like to grow up there and then go to school somewhere else?
1: Mm, yeah. Growing up there was amazing. I mean, aside from hurricanes and, you know, when it gets dark, it's really scary. But growing out there was amazing. I mean, we played in the sawgrass. Oh, that's a funny story about the gators. We used to dare each other to stay in the water the longest in the canal till the gator got really close, and the (laughs) last one out was a chicken, those kind of things. And... You know, um, things that were a little not probably allowed too much today. We were playing with fireworks out there. It was it was in a sense, you know, Lord of the Flies for most of the time, <laughs> and that was great. But and I also because my parents wanted me to get a better education, they sent me to um, how do you say a public school out that was about an hour's drive away in Everglades City, which was primarily white students African American and then some Mexicans and stuff like that so that was my introduction into the outside world because back then in the 90s the the reservation was there was stuff coming in but it was still very you know there's no social media so you're not seeing the outside world too much so it's it's own little universe down there Yeah. so that was my introduction into the world was, was that and then going back and forth was a little bit Confusing because you're these. I mean, at the end of the day, you're just a kid. You're not really knowing what's going on. But you know, obviously, in school, sometimes when you get in the fights or whatever, they say go back to your teepee and things like that. And my tribe that never made a teepee in its existence. You know what I mean? We make chickies. <laughs> so that's the kind of stigma that. You so know, that was a pretty. Think.
0: Yeah, it was. It was kind of a racist, hateful thing to say. I mean, is that how you read that or?
1: I mean, of course, in this day and age, yeah. I mean, back then, you just brush it off or, you know, unfortunately, you have to wrestle and play art or something like that. But, I mean, I didn't take it too hard because I was confused most of all. I was like, teepees, why? You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Or certain practices that I couldn't go to school, like our ceremony, I would be... Taken out for five days or something like that, or there's a death in Klan, then I stay home for four to three days while we mourn. And some students would be like, Why does he get to do that? You know, those kind of things.
0: Right. Was yeah. it easy to make friends in that public school that was outside of the reservation, or did you always feel a little bit on the outside?
1: No, I, I made a pretty good batch of friends. It was great. I, you know, at the end of the day, we're kids. So if we like the same thing, we're going to be in it together, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I guess that, however you'd want to describe it, that confusion, that alienation comes later, I think. Definitely to teens or whatever. And then that just progresses, I think. If, if, I want to say that there's a great recognition that happens. I can't speak for all Native Americans, but when you start navigating through the world and seeing the outside world and there's a moment a little spark that goes wow i'm actually proud to be who i am where i came from and where i can take this that little spark can help feel a sense of um like a pride or like a like a deep rooted sense that you have been here really long and you will continue to be here and thrive and not just survive
0: yeah how long did it take you to get from how long I guess to get comfortable with yourself and your identity in a way that that you were proud and happy to start mining your own background and your own biography and experience for your film content
1: I believe it happened when others start recognizing it in you it's not so much that oh I can have that, but I guess it's a sl- um, not a slow progress, but baby steps. And then you wake up one day and it's whoa, this is actually here. And I think that might have happened when I did my first film, Two Brothers, which is a short film that went on to win best short, best native director short at Phoenix Film Festival, played on Alaska Airlines. That short film since I wrote it, directed it, all these things, and people responded to it in this way was kind of a revelation of, wow, there's something to be proud of here, in a sense. And I think beyond the whole Native American aspect, it's also as an artist, too. I believe artists feel this once something gets validated and a purpose is kind of felt, and also having others believe in you and make your projects come true, it's all this weird synchronization that all comes together. I think beyond any race, color, or anything, it's like this this joint collaboration. And also receiving, because at the end of the day, the audience has to receive it. And I've seen many walks of life receive it, all in different ways, but it's all centered in this kind of relation. We all relate in a, in a sense.
0: Yeah. And you also have gotten to know, uh, you've been involved in the Lumbee Film Festival, and you've gotten to know some Lumbees in North Carolina. What was your first connection to that tribe?
1: My first connection was another Lumbee, or not, I don't want to say another, but a Lumbee tribe member who moved out to Los Angeles. And we met in a writing group out here, a Native American writing group. And that's how I met Efren Cologne and he was kind of a great partner and we wrote scripts we collaborated with ideas and then he mentioned the Lumbee Film Festival back in 2022 and that they were interested in showing some of my th- work so I said of course and he said we, are you willing to go down there too and we'll read scripts and have this whole little thing and I said yeah so I went down there and I learned about the tribe's history from efren as well. And I went to their museum and I checked it out, met the people, ate the food. And that was my introduction, was last year's film festival. And we still have a great relationship going on because this woman, Melinda Lowry, saw my film at the festival and then hired me to direct their film called Lumbee Land. And that was last month, I believe. So I was out there for about six days.
0: And we're going to hear more about that film and others that you've made when we come back from this short break. You're listening to Coastline. Filmmaker Montana Cypress is my guest today. We'll also hear what Sherman Alexie articulated about Native American identity that resonated with Montana, even though the tribes are at the opposite ends of the U.S. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Montana Cypress grew up on the Miccosukee Reservation in the Florida Everglades. He made films as a child with his brother, not knowing he would grow up to become a professional filmmaker, with his life on the reservation a key point of inspiration for him. His newest film, the documentary Tough Skin, is part of the Lumbee Film Festival, July 6th to the 8th in Pembroke, North Carolina, during Lumbee Homecoming. Montana, you have a story about your own dog that mm-hmm. you almost lost to an alligator. And we we saw this, you include it in your documentary, Tough Skin, the story about the man who wrestles an alligator to get his dog Gunner from the alligator's clutches, all while keeping a cigar clenched between his teeth. And he successfully rescues Gunner, which may have been why that became a national story. But that's that happened to you.
1: Yes, it's one morning, I was sleeping, back when I used to live on the reservation, and then my mom comes in and says, "Nahi, nahi, chukshi, the gators got chukshi," and then I was like, "What?" I rushed to the back. Chukchi was my dog's name. It means pumpkin in Mikisuki. So, Chukchi, we go back there and we find her in the gator's mouth, but the gator is holding on to her. So it's not eating her or it's not biting harder. It I think it was simply trying to find out what the heck it was in its mouth because it was a little French bulldog and she she would yelp here and there, but The gator was just holding her. So we were trying to be careful of getting it loose so it wouldn't roll and eat it. And me, my neighbor Howard, the late Howard, he's passed away now, but he came out, helped me. And we got the dog loose from the gator with sticks and, you know, poking and everything. And then the dog ran back into the woods. So I had to go back in there and find Little chookshi, you know, nestled in the bush, terrified. And I took her to the vet immediately. And there was no punctures, no nothing. It was it was, it was, was actually fascinating how she didn't get hurt. Wow. And so I kept her. And one thing that I have to note, too, is that she was a res dog. What's, res a, dog is what's a, a res dog? A res dog is um, short for reservation dog, not the show, but it's a dog that, if you go to any res or something like that that I've seen too any reservation, you'll find these dogs they're just they live on the reservation and they're free in a sense they just stay around the houses that they you know their owners live and they hang out with other dogs they sometimes go in packs they they're just free dogs and they live their own life you feed them whatever and that's what she was, so she hung out with four other dogs all the time and that's what she was, so she. that's why she was out there in the first place. Probably got a little curious. I don't know. I mean, most res dogs are smart out there in the Everglades. They don't touch things that have eyes poking out of the water or anything like that. They kind of have the sensory. Because, you know, um, you have to be smart to survive out there in the Everglades if you're a res dog. But, yeah. So we got her loose. Everything was fine. Three days later, she got hit by a car. Oh! So I, so oh. I found her body on the side of the road.
0: Oh, Montana!
1: Yeah, that was that was a that was an interesting night. It was the other dogs were barking, so they were. I was like something has to be up. Went out there. There was even some lightning in the distance. So it was like a picturesque, kind of tragic night. But I picked the dog up. Yeah, and then we did the the usual ritual stuff and. I think it was just it's time to go.
0: Yeah, I'm so sorry about that.
1: No, it's all good. I, I have that story somewhat in my new Christmas movie that a dog loves his, I mean that a dad loves his dog so much gets eaten by the gator, but now he believes the spirit is in the gator, so he loves the gator just as much as he loves the dog in my Christmas comedy coming out.
0: Christmas in Otopi.
1: Ochopi, yeah.
0: Otopi. Okay, and w- since we're since we mentioned it go ahead and tell us a little bit about this I saw the short version but you say that you are you have a feature length of this coming out
1: yes we're almost done with post-production for the feature film a Christmas in Ochopi which is guess who's coming home to dinner meets a Christmas vacation so <laughs> it's antics it's wild we have baby gators we have large gators we have fireworks we have Family shenanigans, fights, brawls, romance, cops, the whole nine yards.
0: <laughs> it's very funny. It's a, So the premise is uh, you are bringing home your white vegan girlfriend to meet your family on the reservation. Is that right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And hijinks ensue. And they're shocked. They weren't expecting a white vegan girl to come walking in the door with you.
1: And it's unannounced that she's my fiance now. And then also we come to find out later that she's pregnant as well.
0: Right. Yeah. Just a few small details that the family learns. Mm -hmm. It's very funny. So uh, going back to the Lumbees, you grew up in the Miccosukee tribe, who received federal recognition in 1962. Is that right? I believe so. And the Lumbees of North Carolina have a really complicated history on this issue. I guess in 1956, there was actual legislation recognizing the Lumbee tribe, but the bill included a caveat that denied Lumbee benefits that every other federally recognized tribe receives. And even In 2023, some North Carolina congressmen have introduced the Lumbee Fairness Act, which is legislation to grant these federal benefits to the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina that every other federally recognized tribe receives. Was this ever something when you were working on the film Lumbee Land or going to the film festival and talking with folks on the reservation? Is this something that you heard about?
1: Yes, Efren mentioned certain moments in history that the Lumbies have went through, and the subject matter that was in the film, Lumbyland, was modern day. It wasn't so much that. It was more of the effects that everything happened after. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I even had an ex-chairman who was playing one of the characters in this. Unfortunately, we didn't have so much time to talk, but more so our conversations were about how everybody's feeling today and maybe how some of those choices back in those days have trickling effects leading into the modern way of living or something like that. So there were some talks, but most of the time it was rooted in what's happening now.
0: Yeah. And did you see struggles uh, among the Lumbees that you don't necessarily see with other Native American tribes?
1: No, I mean, that's a it's an interesting perspective because I think it's like any city or anywhere, but there's some fluctuating scales of you know economic living and stuff like that. I mean, I've been to Pine Ridge, I've been to the Navajo Reservation, I've been to my reservation, Seminole Reservation. And what's funny is that no matter what, you know, a certain, uh, how do I say, I guess their economic thing, no matter how up or down or wherever they are on the scale, I feel there's the same kind of universal problems that, I mean, uh, like uh, certain things that we're going through that are all universal that's happening. I mean, I saw some of the same things that I've seen on my reservation over at the Pine Ridge, and I've seen some of the same things down here in California that I've seen all the way in North Carolina, so it's it's very interesting. There's this, you know, little connection and I think it's uh, like on a bigger tone that I can feel when I'm in different areas of the country.
0: There's a connection that's a Native American connection, perhaps, and then are you also talking about generational trauma, which is something?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's the kind of thing I was getting at. Is this? I don't want to put too much emphasis on like, oh, that like uh, we're all hurting or something like that, mm-hmm. because a lot of us are thriving and this is awesome, and that's what I want to do. My films for is to help empower and get the creative side out of any native american out there who's wanting to make films any filmmaker in that regard but i do notice this thing that's all around that's i mean it's not evident in your nose it's something you feel it's weird and i've seen it i've 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 seen it in minnesota too so it's interesting and i mean yeah it it ranges and it's it's very confusing at times
0: you mentioned the writer Sherman Alexie when we first spoke, who grew mm-hmm. up on a reservation in Spokane, Washington. And he's published at least two dozen du- books, including The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. And you talked about an observation that he made in Reservation Blues. Can you talk a little bit about how that resonated with you?
1: Yeah, it's there's a quote in there that, I love very much it says you're not really an Indian unless there was a time in your life where you didn't want to be one and yeah I definitely highlight that because this is my experience that's how it feels at like a not so much now but growing up or different segments in my journey it's felt like that like what is this? I don't belong to any particular group. I mean, flashback to a time when my life was kind of complete one hundred and eighty than what it is now. I mean, it's hard to find an Indian. I mean, even in even in a like I said back then, even in jail, there was not really Indians. I think I found one, and we shared a bunk together and stuff like that. But other than that, it's a very weird experience. That can all kind of be uh, when you get proud to be what you are. Like, oh wow, I am. I am. I am actually this thing that's thriving and can go on. That is empowering.
0: You made this film, this short film called Thunder Dance, which mm-hmm. doesn't have any lines in it. It's all um, music and dancing and. Can you kind of describe, because when you, a couple of times now, when you've talked about learning to take pride in who you are, I think of that film and of what the character that you play, the main character, had to go through. Can you kind of describe the plot?
1: Yes. It's during the Indian Relocation Act when they are moving in the 50s, Native Americans from the reservations to the cities to help, you know, help them become part of a larger population. And in that film, he comes in, working at a diner, this and that, feels alone, all these things, but then he finds a group of swing dancers, and obviously there's this pretty girl too that he wants to give a present, and then obviously bullies and stuff like that, and then what he does is he incorporates his own stomp dancing into the swing dancing, and then everybody gets on board, and there's this beautiful, you know, Collaboration of stomp dancing and swing dancing. And it's a celebration, and everybody's intertwining at a sense. Yes. In a sense. Yeah.
0: Yes, yes. And beginning when he's in his uniform, mopping up or sweeping up at the diner, his boss is this grumpy old white man who kind of reigns on his party. I mean, it's interesting that the dance bubbles up out of the main character when he's got when he's at work and he uses what he has right in front of him to create sound and music and dance
1: mhm and obviously the the owner is grumpy because I'm supposed to be working but I keep dancing you know what I mean <laughs> <laughs> it's like get to work stop dancing so he recognizes that and that's that's like the native loves to dance in that film And then he finds those swing dancers and he's like, oh, maybe I have a relation here. Oh, wait, there's some bullies. And then you overcome that.
0: Yeah. And we just have a few minutes left. And I want to make sure I mention uh, one more time Montana Cypress's newest film, a documentary called Tough Skin, is part of the Lumbee Film Festival, July 6th to the 8th in Pembroke, North Carolina, during Lumbee Homecoming. And one thing we haven't talked about, Montana, is championships in alligator wrestling. And that's not really something you include in your film, but what is that?
1: Yeah, that's where they get the best wrestlers wherever they come from, Florida, the southeast, and they held these championships over in, I want to say, sometimes in Hollywood, Florida, at the Seminole Casino, and... Sometimes they would have these water pits, these caves and it was all judged on how daring you can be, how gentle you can be and all these maneuvers and some contests you have to dive in the water and get the gator and stuff like that and that's what Farrell won three or f- I think it's four times somewhere around there but he's world wrestling champion four times and we show a lot of his footage in the documentary
0: yeah, it's, and it is in a way like dance. It's, it's like he really communes with the alligator. But I also just want to touch briefly on the fact that in North Carolina, there are um, some pretty horrific tourist traps where people can stop and take pictures, for example, with a baby bear or a baby wildcat of some kind and – Some of these places are known to kill the animals when they get to be too big or too old to manage. But that's Mm -hmm. not what's happening with the gators, is it?
1: No, these gators live for a long time. (laughs) There's, Yeah, they just hang out, eat, and keep living.
0: (laughs) And that's this edition of Coastline Montana Cypress. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you, Rachel.
0: The film is tough skin. Heartfelt thanks also to member station KCLU and Russ Maloney and Thousand Oaks, who made this interview possible. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell, who engineered this episode. Find us on Facebook at WHQR's Coastline Hosted By. Find the episode along with links and resources at WHQR.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.